Uh, this is Ian Harvey, Tokyo West brand manager. I'm here with Chris Cook. Chris has represented the United States 45 times in World Cup, World Championship, and Olympic competitions. His best individual international result was 12th place in the Sovereign Lakes World Cup skate sprint in 2005. Chris finished 21st in the 2006 Olympics in the skate sprint. Chris retired after the 2011 season. He is now 40 and living in Rhinelander, Wisconsin with his wife and his son. Um, Chris, thanks a lot for doing this. Uh, you've you're, uh, got a cool personality and following and um, I'm excited to do this. I know it's gonna be real popular. No, my pleasure. Uh, thanks for reaching out and, and looking forward to uh, talking, talking uh, uh, to the ski world here uh, through the interwebs again. Yeah, for sure. Well, you obviously come from a super strong ski family. Can you please tell us about where you grew up and how you started ski racing? Yeah, certainly. So uh, pretty much called home uh, Rhinelander, Wisconsin. Uh, graduated high school here. We, we started when I was real young, um, kind of in the Green Bay area and things like that, but pretty much moved to Rhinelander um, where I really got into, played soccer when I was young and skied obviously the whole time. Um, my, my, uh, my story for getting into ski racing um, is pretty interesting, and I, and I owe a lot of it to, uh, to my family. Uh, grew up, obviously, going to uh, the Berkey with my family. My, my parents were both um, recreational skiers, raced, though, um, and enjoyed that. So, we, you know, they were trained for the Berkey every year. But uh, because they were ski racers way back in the day, they put me on skis so they could go skiing and train for the Berkey, I presume, or the races, whatever they had coming up. So I started at a really young age. Um, so I think it was uh, two and a half, maybe three, you know, put, put your ski boots on, on your, you know, the, your winter boots and strapped them right to those little, little skis and truck around. So, but anyway, they hauled me, they hauled me to a, a race in, in, um, I think it was Southern Wisconsin, Standing Rocks, maybe, or uh, it was a long time ago, obviously. And uh, they, there was a kid's race, and I was way too young to be in the kid's race, um, but uh, still old enough to remember it. Um, but the gun goes off, and I'm standing there at the starting line, and I didn't want to do it. All we had to do was cross this lake, and I think, you know, pull up, come up behind the ski lodge, go up a hill, and, and come back to the chalet. But I didn't want to do it. Um, you know, they, they all left me. I was dead last standing there. So my dad put me on his shoulders, skied me across the lake. And uh, because I'd been out there presumably so long, uh, there was a long kind of long climb up to the chalet, kind of off the lake, back to the top where the, where the chalet was. And by that time, there was all of these spectators and other kids lined up the side of this hill. And here I come skiing on my dad's shoulders. I'm like, oh, yeah, put me down, put me down now. And uh, so he put me down and I skied up the hill, you know, and all, everyone was cheering for me. And I thought that was, you know, I felt like I had won the race. Um, so that was really neat. And uh, the story goes on. So, you know, they had done their race and I think they were waiting for um, uh, their awards and we we're kind of sitting in the chalet. I was asleep because uh, my big race um, had exhausted me thoroughly. So I was sleeping in there. Um, but uh, all of a sudden, you know, they were announcing the winner, the overall winner of the, of the, the day that day. Um, I, I don't know who the gentleman was, but uh, so he goes up there and gets his, um, gets his trophy. It was a nice little ski trophy for winning the overall uh, race day. And uh, he, he gets up there and he says, I'd like to, you know, give my trophy to the youngest participant in the race. So they wake me up because, I mean, everyone knew I was the only one skiing half the race on my dad's shoulders. And so I get to go up there 
in my first ski race, and uh, I got the biggest trophy of the day, um, and that was at uh, the start of my ski racing career. And from that point on, I just wanted to get more trophies. So um, that's kind of my <laughs> my interesting story on on how I got into ski racing. I just wanted to collect more trophies. Um, so uh, yeah, that was the start of my ski racing career. Um, was fortunate enough to have a really strong um, high school program here in Rhinelander, Wisconsin. Um, Judy Swank and uh, was the coach at the time, and his uh, her daughter, her, her son was a was a uh, was a really good skier that I kind of looked up to. Adam Swank, still very active in the ski community, still a very good skier, um, and so I kind of looked up to him. And uh, he had gone through our program and also had success enough in high school where he got a scholarship to UWGB Green Bay. And I kind of wanted to follow in his footsteps as well. So um, we had some good talent. Um, Adam Swank was on that team, Todd Craig, uh, Brian Fish, a lot of guys that went on to have impacts in the, um, and not only in, in Rhinelander Ski Club, but in the country with Brian Fish and everything he's done. And then Adam Swank being a, a well-known racer, not only in this country, but um, overseas as well in, in some of the international marathons. So I had a lot of uh, I was very fortunate to have those guys to look up to and really wanted to follow in their footsteps. Um, and uh, that Rhinelander program uh, was fortunate enough to, to kind of pave the way from, from where I took skiing from there. Great. Uh, after a first race experience like that, you pretty much had nowhere to go but down, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. What a spectacular a first to, race. <laughs> that's right. It, it took a while to win some more trophies, but uh, – you know, to feel better, like I realized I couldn't be dead last and get the trophies. So uh, I realized you had to put in some work too. <laughs> <Dang> it. <laughs> um, in 2016, your parents, Bob and Karen, were inducted into the Wisconsin Ski Hall of Fame. Of course, I've met them and really respect and admire them. That must make you so proud to, to have parents that had such an impact in the, on the ski community like that. And you can see their legacy through their children uh, you're one of your brothers and your sister coach currently. Brian works for um, Machus currently, and obviously you're still, uh, I mean, you've, you've had an illustrious ski career. Can you, can you say something about your parents and their legacy, please? Yeah, certainly. So it's, I, and I owe a lot, of, uh, a lot of my success in part to my, my parents as well. And uh, they, it was, uh, I think what was really cool about their story is not only that they help me and my career and support me through all that but they were really students of the game as well like I said they were recreational ra racers back in the day but that was it I mean it was you know citizen racer um, they loved the sport they loved getting out and doing it but as as we got into it and got more serious with racing and things like that they were students of the game and went to coaching symposiums and really wanted to learn more how how could we how could we you know help help our children progress at this and, and be better, not just by supporting them financially and getting them around, but is there things we can do where we can learn more so we can help them um, and things like that. And so it was, that was really cool. Um, I mean, they went to 110% in and then they've, and then they continued to um, uh, grow the sport too. And I think that was really part of their, their passion was to, to um, grow the sport give back to the sport and really help others engage in the sport. Um, and they did that through, you know, uh, many years of coaching at junior nationals, even after, even after a lot of um, our family was out of it, they continued 
Um, they went to, to get their highest level of coaching credentials. Then they went on to be um, uh, uh, delegate, uh, not delegates, but uh, uh, chief of course and, and things like that for FIS um, in, under, in understanding all of that so they could help put on races and put on good races and events like that and really have an understanding to make it feel like a professional event. Um, so it's been, it's been re really cool. And they've actually um, continued, continued that, um, you know, today and, and helped Rhinelanders um, grow it even more. So we had a venue um, that both my parents spent a lot of time here in Rhinelander, Wisconsin, Cavoc Trails, they're called. Um, and they were able to host a couple of, of regional college races. It was actually UWGB's home event because there's snow here generally in Rhinelander. And um, with the success of that event and all the work they put in there, um, they actually went a step further and, and are looking, I think they actually did this summer, get the course FIS homologated. So it's actually a FIS homologated course, which means you could host a um, a FIS event, so a Super Tour, for example, or a Junior National Qualifier, things like that. Just another way to continue to keep the sport here in Rhinelander, keep it in the community, and really build it further. And, you know, Rhinelanders had a rich um, Nordic scene heritage, and this is just one more way that they'll leave their lasting legacy and impact on Rhinelander for years to come. And, it's, and you can see it, it's growing our, growing our, our youth programs here, um, and the ski community and ski programs have really grow, uh, grown because of it. And I think it's, a, it's in part due to a lot of their work, which is really cool. That's awesome. Yeah. I've actually been to Rhinelander, even though it's not in the, uh, currently anyway, not currently on the, on the beaten path between all the different uh, super mm -hmm. tour type venues, but it was the, when nationals were in Houghton, I think it was sometime around 2005 or something like that. Yeah. Um, 2004. Um, I booked I booked my flight for the after the end of the last event of the last day, but the same day. And then the race was so exciting. We ended up winning both the sprint relays, and, and it was so exciting. I wasn't going anywhere, and I thought I can still probably make it. And I whipped over to the Houghton Airport, came screaming in 29 minutes before my flight, and they wouldn't check me in. You couldn't do the online check-in back, and they wouldn't check me in because yeah. there was an FAA rule yep. saying you can't leave, you can't check in less than a half hour before the flight. And so I ended up driving to Rhinelander and flying out of there. But I didn't get a chance to go skiing because I got there when it was dark. But I've been there, if nothing else. I've seen your hometown. There you go. And hopefully uh, hopefully you'll, you'll get a chance in, in the future. Maybe one of these days we'll have a super tour. We'll get on that super tour circuit. So that'd be yeah. cool. Hey, so how fast were you in high school? Because you ended up going to NMU in college, and they don't take anybody usually, you know. So <laughs> tell, me, tell me about the rest of your high school career. Certainly. So – um, I had some, some good success, um, through my high school career. I think I was God, it's a long time ago, unfortunately, I'm getting old these days, but, uh, I think I was a three time state champ through our, our high school, um, for Rhinelander. Um, there was another skier that was an older skier than me who ended up also going to UWGB, Matt Frost. Um, and we skied quite a few years together in high school and really pushed each other, which was really cool. Um, he was also a very good skier. Um, but I was able to close out my, my high school career with uh, a couple state championships, was able to win. I think we did like a pursuit back then and then a classic and a freestyle and you had individual champions. So I think my senior year, I was able to sweep it all um, and was actually um, at, through high school doing the junior nationals, uh, the USSA races to go to junior nationals. In my senior year, I ended up third, oh gosh, third 
in, um, uh, I think it was Giants Ridge was junior nationals that year. Um, and I can't remember which, if it was the skater of the freestyle or the skater of the classic race, but uh, it was there where, um, um, well, actually it wasn't there, but I was also trying desperately to qualify for junior, junior worlds when I was in high school. Um, I never did it when I was in high school, but there was a, um, a junior, they had trials. Back then it was junior world trials, my senior year of high school. And it was in, um, it was at uh, Suicide Bowl in Marquette. And uh, while I didn't qualify, I think I was the second alternate behind maybe Matt Weir. But I, I raced my heart out and skied as hard as I could. And I think it was like a 5K and maybe a 10K. And I skied so hard and was so kind of this raw talent back then, not really polished, but really, really wanted it really bad and really went for it. And that was one of the things where, where it was obviously in Marquette and, and Sten at the time had seen me skiing. He's like, who is this guy just bulldozing around the course here? That's a good description. <laughs> you know, just going for it. You know, I, that's a, I could work with that. And uh, that's when I met Sten and finished out that good um, senior, senior year of high school and, and kept off at junior nationals and um, put myself on the map to get a scholarship to Northern Michigan University. So that's uh, that race um, that my parents brought me to and for junior world trials in Marquette was really what, um, which uh, gave me the stepping stone for my collegiate career. Cool. Well, I got to say, you're not that old. You say you're, um, you won the state championship three times and you were third in junior nationals. When you hit your sixties, you will have 10 state championships and you were, you would have been the world, <laughs> the junior national champion, you know? So you're not that That's old. That's right. <laughs> All right. I'll take that. <laughs> Okay, so you flourished under under Stan at NMU. Can you tell us about your time at NMU and and how his program and personality seemed to work really well for you? Certainly. So that you know I, that really launched my career was going to Northern Michigan University, and I think it was due to in part the 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 credentials that Stan had at the time. He was a U.S. ski team coach. He had good success there. He had been at Northern. He had coached you know uh, Northern to be um, Pete Vordenberg to be an NCAA champ uh, was one of the only American NCAA champs at the time in a, in a long list of foreigners that had had that title. And then he had left and came back. So going there, I knew, you know, if I wanted to be a ski racer, he could give me the tools and show me how it's done. And we had a really awesome team there as well. We came in as freshmen, um, kind of as a new crop of talent, because then had been Sen was just getting there or maybe one, I think maybe it was his second year back after, after working with the U.S. ski team. So we, we brought in some talent that were all kind of right around the same age. And uh, Matt Weir was one of them. We all ended up being roommates and good friends to this day. And we pushed each other and we trained and we did, you know, Sten wanted us to run through a brick wall. You know, we'd go for it because um, we could see the success he had had. We saw success with what he was doing for us. And it just snowballed. And then we would push each other in, in interval se sessions. And, um, you know, then the results just kept coming. And uh, it just snowballed through our, through our whole career. It was really learned so much about training, periodization, um, you know, how to be a professional, how to carry yourself, how to rest and recovery and all of these things. You know, he just didn't give you a training plan and said, do this and you're going to make it. it. He really explained why. And he really sat down with you and he actually individualized things and said, Hey, you know, I realize, you know, this guy over here needs a little bit more 
endurance training, you need a little bit more strength training. And he, he was still able to give you um, individual aspects to work on it. So it wasn't a cookie cutter thing. And he really was a, um, you know, his, his sports um, physiology background. You really understood um, what you were doing and why you were doing it. Um, and it just grew your knowledge. And we were sponges and we wanted to take it all in. Um, and we turned out to be one of the forces um, in the central region um, under Sten. And uh, it just, it just, it just ballooned. It was, I, I credit a lot of uh, my success in my ski career to what I did in my five-year tenure at Northern Michigan University. So it shouldn't be this way, but it's my estimation that except for more the elite ski crowd, Sten is not really that known outside of the Midwest for some reason, even though he's been doing what he's been doing for so long. He's a total legend to anyone mm-hmm. in the elite ski world, as well as to pretty much anyone in the Midwest. But to someone, let's say, in Utah or California, Alaska, that, that never reached that high, high end, they, they might not even know who he is, which is baffling to me, but I understand it. But uh, for me, for me part of, from my perspective, part of Sten's legacy is taking in athletes that no one's ever heard of, that, you know, mm-hmm. they might have been the Wisconsin State champion or something, but they weren't on the world junior team. They weren't, you know, one of the shooting stars of the junior programs anywhere. And then a couple of years later, they win NCAAs or they're on the U.S. ski team and they're, they're winning nationals out of nowhere. I mean, there's a long, long list of examples of that. Like uh, before Kyle Bratrud won NCAAs and nationals, who ever heard of Kyle Bratrud? Or there's a whole yeah. long list of women. He had, he had uh, his women took not only top three in NCAAs, but they took top three in U.S. nationals mm-hmm. a few times. I mean, he's a legendary coach and not like some coaches who are, I'm not, I'm not um, cutting on them but they get the, they cherry pick the best talent. And then it's like, well, you know, it's kind of expected that let's say a guy like uh, Justin Wadsworth is going to win sort of blaze. You know, it's not a, yep. a shocker. Yep. But with Stin, I not being from the Midwest and not being at the time, you know, like putting a micro microscope on the, on the Midwest junior team scene. I never heard of any of these guys and including yourself when you were a junior and mm-hmm. you got a whole slew of NCAA national champions coming out of Stin's program that weren't quote unquote talented, but the reality is Sten knows what he's looking for. He's looking for someone with an engine and with guts and drive. Yep. Can you talk about his legacy and, and how he's able, been able to do that? Cause I know you know about it. Yeah, no, that, that's a great description. And I think you could also, I think you can also add to that, that I think he looked for athletes maybe with a chip on their shoulder or because they didn't have they didn't have that immediate success when they were young, or you know they weren't a staple at junior nationals on the podium each year, you know like Chris Freeman was, or some of those other names back in the day when I was um, growing up. Uh, you know I grew up racing with Ethan Foster and some of those guys that were known throughout the country. Right. Um, but I think I think Sten's real talent was looking for, like you had said, the the engine and those guys that uh, had the chip on their shoulder that wanted to be that desperately wanted to be as good as those national renowned racers and would do whatever it takes to get there. And uh, I think he was very particular in how he did it. And then obviously with his skill in, in looking at technique, he focused so much on that um, because you can have the biggest engine in the world, but if you can't make it go down the trail, you know, it's, 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 it's real inefficient and you're not going to make it there. So that was another gift of his um, is to, hone in your technique and say, listen, you're going to have to slow down to go faster, you know, and, and things like that. And he spent lots of time um, with his athletes and making them understand that. 
Um, and you know, I, his like, he as well known in the, in the elite ranks, but, and maybe that's, that's why he didn't get that national recognition because he didn't cherry pick those athletes that the whole country already knew about. You know, he did pick those athletes with, with the chip on their shoulder or, or, you know, the raw talent or the raw engine and the drive to, you know, make it to, um, you know, be on the U S ski team or the Olympic team or winning NCAAs and U S nationals. Um, so I think that's, that was his, his gift. And he never, he hardly ever strayed from it either. You knew exactly what he was doing and he, he could do it year after year. And his, his like you said, his, his results uh, speak for themselves. I just, I'm going to make up a word, a stenism. Um, I'm going to surprise you with a question. Kyle Bratrud told me, for example, some of the, Sten is well known for, for some of the things that he said, his mantras, you know, Kyle mm-hmm. Bratrud said one of the things he says all the time is, um, First, you form an attitude, and then it forms you, for example. Yep. And I've heard him say many times to someone who wasn't looking, he wasn't saying to me, of course, but to someone who wasn't looking to work that hard, but wanted to be a cross-country skier, he'd say, you picked a heck of a sport. You picked a heck of a sport for someone who doesn't want to work that hard. You picked a heck of a sport, you know. Yep. Do you have any stenisms you want to share? Can you think of any? Oh, gosh, that, that one stuck with me. That one, that, that one of his, is, is his go-to. Um, that, that and his grandma would, would, uh, would be able to, would be able to walk all over you right up Marquette mountain as well. And his stories, um, and his stories, but, but he would also, he would also keep it fun in those, those days in the fall where it was awful out rain, sleet, especially Marquette cold raining, you know, we'd have weeks of that for the transition and, you know, you get in the van and he'd yell out, it's a great day to be a wildcat. And, uh, it just, you know, it wasn't, and we were, you know, you're dragging on some of those days, especially after you get a week of grayness in Marquette and it's cold, rainy, windy, and you're on the roller skis and you just want to be done with them. But uh, he would have that positive spin and it goes back to first you form an attitude and then it forms you, you know, you go out there and be like, you know what? It is a great day to be a wildcat because this going through this garbage is going to make us tougher, stronger. They don't get this in the West. We could be out there in the West with the blue skies and snow early season skiing but guess what? We're hard. And um, that was also one of the things that, you know, that we got in the, the Midwest is no one, we walked away from there saying no one could, no one would train harder than us and no one would work, could outwork us because of where we were from and what we had to go through to get there. Once we got to the ski, ski season, it was all gravy. It was just, let's, let's show our work off. So that's a couple of stenisms for you. <laughs> cool. That's fantastic. So uh, you won in Blaze. Want to mention something about that? Yeah. So that was that was um, that was the reason I went to Northern Michigan University. That's what I wanted to achieve there. Um, and I, I was fortunate enough to do it in the in my last race of my senior year um, and beat some rivals uh, that I'd skied with through since I was a junior. Went to Junior Worlds with um, at Dartmouth. It was a 20k classic race, mass start. Uh, great conditions. Um, we were at the Dartmouth Bowl, I think they called it. Um, it was a great course. And yeah, it was, it was one of those days where it was, I, I think I was the top seated uh, regional central guy. I felt good. We had a good year of training. And it was my, I knew that one was my best shot at winning NCAAs. Classic technique, which I was always strong at. Got great conditions, mass start. It was yeah, it was one of those races you'll never forget. And I made a pass on the on the last lap going up a hill um, with Ethan Foster and uh, Tobias, 
Toby uh, from UAA. We had dwindled the – kept cranking up the pace in the last rap and, and dwindled it down to three guys. That was Toby um, Schroeder. Yeah, great. there you go. Yep. Um, and it was the last big climb and kind of rolled over a couple more, and then you dropped down into the stadium. And, uh, you know, I had always been a strong sprinter, but I didn't want to leave it to that, and I felt good, pulled out, pulled out. I think uh, Toby was leading. I pulled out one way. Ethan pulled out another. And I was like, well, it's going to be a two-man race here because he was a really strong classic skier as well. So we made the pass up the hill, got rid of him. Then I kept pushing the pace, pushing the pace over, over the top of the last couple rollers. And then being a sprinter, pulled out my savvy move. I pulled over it. And uh, Ethan took the bait and took us into the, took us into the stadium. Um, and that was kind of a big horseshoe came around the last turn, pulled to the other track. And, and there was, you know, it was a close finish, but there was no way I was, I was going to lose that um, sprint um, to win that title. So that was uh, capped my career. That was everything I had achieved, everything that I wanted to achieve at Northern and had a bunch of success up to that point, And it was really capped by that. So what a, what a great way to, to end your Northern legacy there. Cool. Nice job. Thanks. Um, I was going to bring this up later, but you mentioned it now. You you mentioned that you were stronger in classic technique, mm-hmm. which I would agree. You know, looking at your um, your skiing over the years as well as your results, um, I think in a 15k classic that was probably your bread and butter distance race. Yep. But your some of your best results were in skate sprints. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. So in skate, you were definitely really competitive in both classic and skate. Mm-hmm. And if anything, your, your best results probably in skate sprint, but in distance, you're much better in classic than in skate. And I think that's a pretty common thing. And that's my question to you. Just looking for your observation. If you look at sprinters, generally they're good in classic and skate, if, assuming they're good in both techniques, but then you go to a distance race, they're much stronger in classic than they are in skate. And I think it's got to do with the, the physiology of the movements. When you skate sprint, it's much more dynamic and less efficient but a classic yeah. sprint is very similar to a, a, a classic distance technique. Is that what you yeah. would, uh, is that your assumption as well? Yeah, I think, you know, I've, I've often wondered that and pondered that too. And then you look at a skier like Andy Newell um, and you, cause I was like, Oh, it's gotta be a physiology thing. You know, classic skiing, you can use a lot of your power. You put it right to the ground. If you have a good firm track, you get all of those gains and it's quick and your muscles are, get to the chance to explode and then relax and glide. And they can keep doing that over and over. And in the skating, it seems like it's a little more when you're in the distance race, it's a little bit more dynamic. It's a little bit more static and you're it's, they don't really get that chance to really use all the power that they have. Um, and then recover over and over like you do in, in when you're classic skiing. But so I was like, oh, it's got to be a physiology thing. And then you look at some of the builds and it's like, I knew I was explosive. And I knew if I lost power in a distance race, for example, if it was soft conditions, even in a skate sprint, if it was soft, I really struggled because I'd lose. I, I always skied with a lot of power. And if I would lose, lose power to the snow and have a push away, I have to work so much harder and I couldn't overcome that. Even a little bit, even a little bit in the classic um, races as well. Um, so, I, but then you look at um, some of the builds and some of the physiology of the top sprinters in the world. Andy Newell is a great example. Like he was able to, um, 
you know, he didn't have big, huge, bulky muscles. He was uh, kind of a long, lean guy, but one of the best sprinters in the world. Um, and then you had really short, stocky guys that were really good, like um, uh, Emil from Sweden, really short, short and stocky. You know, it's like completely different builds, completely different physiology, but still both really good at it. So I don't know the answer to that question. I've, I've thought about it, look back at my training and wonder if there were things I could do differently to, to do it. But I think it's, that's, that's one I still haven't solved. And, and um, I don't know if there is, there is an answer to that one. That's a tough one. I think you brought something else up that um, I think is quite an interesting thing to consider. And that is, if you look at the builds of the sprinters on average, to me, Andy Newell was ahead of his time. But if you look at the sprinters on average, when you were competing, domestically, you're looking at a guy like Torn Coos or yourself, or um, mm -hmm. let's leave Andy out, because I think he's more like a, a sprinter in today's age. Yep. Um, look at Ben Saxton, for example, who is towards the end of your career. He, he's, he, he got huge. And I yep. talked to him earlier this year, and he's lost 25 pounds. He's trying to become lean and, and more wiry, kind of like Andy. And he thinks yep. he's going to have a big winner for that reason. But if you look at like Matthias Fredrickson was one of the world's leading sprinters of your time or Tony Hetland, yep. he had some really big guys that looked more like, I don't know, linebackers than they did cross country skiers traditionally. Yep. And, you know, so generally the, the, the all arounders, they weren't all arounders. There were sprinters that, you know, they needed extra large racing suits and they were stretched to the max, you know, and they were heavy yeah. and powerful and you put them in soft snow, they're in trouble. But in yep. hard snow, they're putting out some horsepower. In this day and age, looking at the sprinters, they're getting leaner and leaner and leaner. Obviously, look at Claybo or a guy like Newell. But there's a lot of yep. sprinters that are much smaller and successful yep. in this day and age. It seems like perhaps with more rounds and perhaps longer sprint events, yep. especially with more difficult courses, I think yep. it's become much more important. What are your thoughts on that? Have you... No, I, I would definitely agree. And if you look at the evolution of skate racing or um, sprint racing is when it first started, those sprints were short. You know, you're talking about a, a 1200 meter race was a long one back in the day. And, uh, and the courses maybe had one, two hills, right? And so you had to hammer up two hills and then carry your speed through the downs and the flats. And that was it. Um, and then as it evolved, the, the courses, even Torino, Pragolato was like that, which was great for me. It was a it was kind of a medium course, um, had two hills in it, and I, that was still, um, you know, one of my best sprint races, and it was a skate skate sprint, and, and one that, I mean, just fit me, and I felt good going into those games, so that was a really fun event, but but back to back to your point, you know, they've really, those courses have really evolved. They start putting two laps in it, and they're getting close to almost 2K, you know, one, you know, they, they're like, oh, a sprint race can be as short as, you know, uh, 1,100 meters, and and all the way up to, you know, I think it was 1.9. They didn't want to get to 2,000 or 2K. But it looked, you started looking at them, and the only ones that were short were the city sprints. And every other sprint venue was right at the limit at, you know, 18 or 1,900 meters, and they tried to make them as hard as possible. <laughs> so, and I think that, that, that changed and, and grew and changed the evolution of the sprinter as well into some of those guys that, you know, those transition guys, the guys could really dominate in them. And a 15K on the World Cup, maybe a 30K on, on good conditions. But, you know, and then the rounds to go through all that, you really had to be, you know, one of those guys and just have to hone your skills and, and really being able to move your, your limbs really fast and create that power. And so I think it was, it, it 
kind of eliminated the, the sprint squads that, you know, the sprint specialists from back in the day and kind of molded it into these hybrid guys as, as you move forward. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's how the, the sport has evolved. Yeah, that's cool. So when you graduated from NMU, there wasn't really the club system that exists today. Um, I remember you racing with an atomic suit. I don't remember who you were training with. And then you were the U.S. ski team and then eventually Steinbach Racing. Can you tell yeah. me about the transition from NMU to the U.S. ski team and who you trained under? Certainly, yep. So when I graduated, um, I'd been on and off the uh, U.S. development team uh, a couple times through college. And then I think when I graduated, I, I didn't have the opportunity to get back on that. Um, so I went out west, though, and I went and trained – um, I think I spent two seasons with uh, Sun Valley uh, SVS, SVSEF, had started their um, comp team again. And Chris Grover was actually the one that kind of brought that back. So they brought in, I forget what they called it, the race team or the comp team. Um, so that program, you know, um, and getting ahead of myself, it, it really, you know, you look back at your career now and look at kind of the challenges that you had. And then I'd like to think that we were, maybe some of the kind of laid the foundation for those clubs and those after, what do you do after college? If you don't go right to the U S ski team, where's, where do you bridge that gap? And, um, you know, cause it was challenging. There was, uh, you know, at the, when I graduated, I think my only options was really um, maybe going to you going to Alaska with the, with the program that was started there or it was Sun Valley. And that was pretty much it. Um, I don't think Maine winter sports had really started yet either so there was your options were really limited or go it on your own which is what uh, pretty much everyone was doing yeah everyone was just out there slogging it out roller skiing in the middle of nowhere all by themselves scratching their heads so that yeah. was a huge deal for you for you to be able to go to Sun Valley but it's something I like to look at because I think a lot of people take it for granted in this day and age they graduate from school they get eight elite clubs they can choose from or something like that but um that was a huge thing for you to be able to train with Grover if you look at yeah. Grover's early years as a U.S. ski team sprint coach, that was the golden, those were the golden, that was the golden age of U.S. sprinting, really, in the men's side especially. You guys yeah. did really, really well. And I, I think it's got everything to do with him. Do you have yep. thoughts about, I think some of his training methods, especially in as far as strength go, strength training go, were ahead of the, the curve in terms of the world. Yep. What do you think about that? No, I, I would agree 100%. Chris Grover was, um, you know, was, so Sen was responsible for grooming me and creating me as a cross-country skier um, and getting me, giving me the launch pad of where I wanted to go. Chris Grover was able to um, take me once I got there and get the, and really maximize my potential for sure. Talk about another student of the game. Um, and also, I think what drove him was was like you had said, like, you know, we're not going to do the same thing. We're going to look at all of the, all of these, all of these programs around the world. And we're going to, we're not going to, we're not going to copy them, but we're going to take what we think are the best things they, they have, but we're also going to look for where can we change it or what can give, what can make us better? What can, what can, what can we really capitalize on that? Not just going to copy them. Cause we don't just want to copy them. We want to beat them, you know, and, uh, and, and they, you know, he put the resources together, even when, even when I, when we were at the comp team at SVS in Sun Valley, you know, we're not just going to, we're just not going to copy someone. We're going to, we're going to create our own program 
and take the best of everything that's out there and, and then fine tune it to, to what we need to do. So I, I would agree 100% student of the game, innovator, um, passion, organized, um, analytical, looking at, always looking at what you've done, you know, what could you have done better? What can you change? What, you, what did you think really worked? What didn't work? And how do we improve it for the next year? You're talking about, you know, in the business world now, continuous improvement. Grover was on continuous improvement, you know, with, with professional athletes from, from his get-go before he even made it to the U.S. ski team. And you see the success that he's created throughout that and his legacy, which is, which is really impressive. How much, at that time, how much contact did you have with the U.S. ski team and U.S. ski team strength coach? Um, with, with, um, with Sun Valley in our two years, um, we had it as a resource, but, uh, and Chris Grover had been with the development team and off. So we, we had the resources and we had, had, um, and even Sun Valley had some, um, we had access to sports science and sports physiology. So we, we definitely, I wouldn't say we had complete access to, um, the U S ski team, but they were always there to help us with, if we had questions or if we wanted to bounce ideas off them, they were definitely a resource there for us. So, um, while we didn't see a lot of them, because it was at the time it was small, they had limited resources and they're oftentimes gone. Um, but they they did they did were helpful in reaching out and, and helping you when you ask for resources or, or assistance for sure. And then once once we were on the U.S. ski team um, through that period, uh, we used every resource to the max: sports science, sports physiology, everything, dietitian. You know we. Um, and I, I think probably Grover drove, drove that, you know, continuous improvement across all facets, rest and recovery to training, to every aspect that goes into training. Um, that's, that's really where, where we focused. So Newell was talking to me about the same time period and how, in a sense, it was an advantage for the U.S. ski team to be underfunded because they had to get creative. And the strength coach at that time who I think you worked with once you were on the ski team um, was not a Nordic specific strength coach or anything like that. And so the strength coach brought knowledge from football and from all these other, you know, more traditional strength and power training. And you all started doing training that was not traditional for cross country skiers, even for sprinters throughout the world. And his opinion was because, and it was because there wasn't enough funding to have a Nordic specific strength coach which as it turned out, brought a whole bunch of innovation and, and, and forward thinking. Can you talk about that and how that you benefited oh, from it? Yeah, certainly. That was, it was, it was a new set of eyes, you know, and that's always, and that's always something we were looking for and eager for, frankly. Um, it was because we, because Grover did, did create a, a, an atmosphere of, of innovation and always looking at what you're doing and, and why you were doing it or, or how good, how could we improve it? How could we be better at every turn? And now we get this new set of eyes. Uh, probably Zach Weatherford is probably who um, Andy was talking about. Yeah, Great yeah. guy. We, we got to know him and he didn't know a lick about cross country skiing. He's like, you guys do that? Like, what are you guys doing? You know, and then even at times like Grover's going like, had to think about it. Like, gosh, why, why are we doing this? Um, you know, I better come up with a damn good reason so I can explain to it, explain it to him so he understands it. Um, and so it, it was, it was really interesting. Then we got to ask him questions like these guys do what for, for, for speed training or power training? You're kidding me. 
you know, so it was, it was new, it was fresh, it was new ideas. Um, and uh, we were all eager for it because we all wanted to be the best in the world. And, you know, and here we were thinking, you know, holding aces with, with Weatherford thinking, man, you know, this is new. This is, we're feeling better. We're getting, we're seeing the results from it, you know, and we're confident that no one else has these resources. So um, that was really, um, and we had a lot of that. And, and, and Andy's right. It was a complete, uh, complete product of, of the lack of resources that we had at the time, but um, we made it work and we're fortunate enough and, and some of those things really played into future successes for us. Cool, super. Yeah. So I have a question for you that I'm not sure you've kind of thought about before. As I mentioned earlier, you had 45 starts in World Cup, World Championship and Olympic Games combined. That's actually very few starts for the amount of time that you were on the national team, you know, in our, in our top echelon. The U.S. ski team at that time didn't participate in the World Cups to the extent that they do today. The lack of funding, lack of people in the red group, et cetera. Yep. I think that that probably stunted your development to a point. Um, of, of those 40, 45 starts that you had in the World Cup, World Championships and Olympics, 31 of them were in individual sprint races only. So over, I think you were on the World Cup about nine years, something like that, mm -hmm. eight years. Um, you had 31 individual sprint race starts only. Of those 31 individual sprint races, you scored World Cup points in eight. So just under a third, which is a hell of a return, especially when you consider that you hadn't competed that much. Do you think that if you were able to have had more starts and more experience, you know, mixing it up with everyone and try this and try that, maybe some luck, you know, good skis one day, a good day. Do you think you could have made it into the red group eventually and, and been there and stayed there. Yeah, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's a good point. And, um, you know, the other thing is, is we were at that time we were recovering, we were recovering, we were seeing success, but the way Fist looks at it is we were limited in starts really. And that was one of the, one of the things that, and we were segregated. We had our sprint team and we had our distance team and we had, you know, I think maybe three starts between us. So there wasn't a lot of opportunity even if you wanted to get that maybe distance start or, you know, uh, you know, we really in the limited resources and all that, it was, it was, it was tough. And now as we've seen success and we have more starts, you could see them, you could start throwing in, um, you know, your kind of your true sprinters into those distance races. But to your point, I think it, it, it probably, um, it, 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 you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. It may have helped. Um, you know, racing on the, on the World Cup was, you talked about a stunt in development and, and it's, it's tough. We were, you know, you're, you're going over there and if you're only doing these, these eight sprint races, it's, and it's, you're, you're going up against the best of the world, it's hard to build, um, I wouldn't say build confidence, but it's hard to build on successes, you know, or, or you really have to look for things when you're, when you're coming in, you know, if you just miss it, you're so disappointed. If you come in like 35th and you miss the rounds, it's a real disappointment and, and you don't, and you miss out on the rounds and you don't get to ski that. And then you have to try and, you know, train those rounds to, to keep up uh, and things like that. So it definitely had its challenges um, in that aspect. But, you know, when you're competing in a um, European dominated sport in geographically, especially um, you're at a lot of disadvantages um, because of that. So it's um, I think, 
I think if, if we did have the opportunity of looking back on it um, and we had those more starts like we do now, I think it, it could have been um, beneficial to get into some of those, um, those distance races and things like that to build, build more of a race season, if you will, um, over the year and, and, and just get more time on, on your skis and learn things. And like you said, you have breakthrough races. You know, some of the breakthrough races that you had, you wake up in the morning and you're like, man, I, I don't feel it today. But you end up having one of your best best days. And, and one of the days you feel really great, you end up going like, well, what the heck just happened on that one? You know, so it's, there is that just because of the way your way your your body reacts and works. And, and that's racing, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day. So um, I think uh, looking back at I think that there's maybe something that could that that if I could have changed, maybe I, I would have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I wasn't. Um, you had a great career with some great results. And I wasn't also looking to try to create an opportunity to bellyache or uh, sour grape, you know, but think <laughs> about this. Let's say you're a German with the same talent, the same ability, same everything. You probably would have had three times the starts at least. And, and it would have been easy. You wouldn't have to fly and travel and get used to the yeah. time change. And then you yep. do, you do a sprint qualifier. If you don't qualify, maybe you have one more sprint qualifier a week later, and then you fly home and you're like, man, that sucked, <laughs> you know, yeah. depending. Yeah. Instead, you, you wake up in your own bed, you drive an hour or two to the venue, maybe the day before, maybe not, do the race. And then the next day you're at a Europa Cup or what's now called an Alpen Cup or Opa Cup race somewhere mm -hmm. else in a distance race. And, yep. then, and then you go home and then the next weekend you're doing another sprint World Cup race and maybe a Europa Cup distance race and, and you're not taking yep. starts from anybody. You're, you're yep. racing against elite competition and your development is, is you don't have the time change and the massive expense and, and travel uh, requirements, which also have a, a, a potential health uh, cost and training load cost. I mean, it's a whole different world if, you're, if you live in Europe. So it's just an observation. Yeah, for sure. And racing, racing, yeah, I, I, I think if you talk to any ski racer, racing and racing and racing, we love it. That's why we do it. And uh, I think the more you do it, uh, you know, even if it's not your specialty per se, the more you do it, I think it just, um, you know, I think it's, it just helps, you know, so for sure. Yeah. Okay. Here's a different question. Um, your best world cup distance result was 43rd in a 15 K classic, which is a heck of a race. I think it's important to, to consider also that people dope less. Now there's a lot less doping that's prevalent. And in the 90s, it was outrageous. And then it started to decline. Um, the World Championships in 2001 in Helsinki, there was a big scandal that caught a lot of people. Once again, one year later, 2002 Olympics, it caught a bunch of people. And it started to decline, but it was still very prevalent. I would, I'm of the opinion that even though it's still out there, it's less now than it's ever been. So a result in the mid-2000s isn't that comparable to, and also in the 90s, for example, isn't that comparable to today's a uh, today where the playing field is more level it's not level but it's more level so that's mm -hmm. a heck of a result um clearly you were a sprint specialist though despite also two u.s nationals podiums in sprint race in in distance races yep. what fascinates me is that you skied the berkey in 2010 and you finished third uh which is an amazing result for sprinter a sprinter against some very good competition can you tell us about that race yeah Certainly. So that was, that, that one is, that one still remains bittersweet for me, but, um, but uh, yeah, what, what a, what a race. Um, so that was, 
the Berkey, that was 2010. So that was the year of the um, uh, Vancouver Olympics, which I was, I was, I was not, I was not on the team for the Olympics. And obviously my fitness level and going into that year um, was strong. I felt it was, it was very disappointing to miss that, the opportunity to have the start in uh, the 2010 games for sure. Um, and, and so, so I went into that Berkey um, in, in very good shape and, and frankly pretty disappointed that I didn't make it, but I wasn't going to let it, uh, you know, you can't, you can't dwell on it. It was, hey, it was decisions were made. Can I say something? I believe you were the, um, I'm not sure if it was super true at the time, but the Continental Cup points leader at the time. Mm-hmm. And the Berkey that year, I believe, was also counted towards the domestic yeah. series. So yeah. that, that also uh, had something to do with your motivation and, and part of the, yeah. the back, background there, huh? That's right. That's right. And I, that, that 2010, I ended up uh, winning, the, I think, the overall f- uh, for the sprint. And um, gosh, I might have been the overall Super Tool champion by the end of it or something like that. But um, I was way up there. But yes, it was, so it was following that circuit. So um, in that race, it was, it was a stacked field. It was, it was a good race. It was great conditions. It was firm course. Skis were fast. Like it was, it just kind of all, everything aligned and, um, uh, the fitness level was high. And so went into that race and, and it kind of dwindled down, dwindled down, dwindled down. There was, um, the Italians had a strong showing there and it ended up being Tad Elliott and an Italian that broke away. Oh gosh, maybe sometime after the, probably the 30, 34 K mark and only two guys got away and those two guys got away. And so then the Italians quit working cause there was one guy up and the Americans, um, the distance guys were trying to climb to close the gap. So I really got a free pass because I was a sprinter and they're all like, Oh man, he's not going to make it anyway. So I didn't have to do any work. You know, I was like, I'm not going to go try and chase those guys down. I'm just trying to make it to the end here. And, uh, and I, I never faded. I was like, gosh, I feel really good. And I'm kind of sitting in the back here of this group and it kept getting smaller and smaller and Tad and uh, the Italian were gone and we were, and then they kind of about, I think 45 K were like, all right, we're shutting it down. I'm looking around and there's eight guys or six, you know, six or eight guys left. And we're going up to the last hill. I was, and I was going on the lake. I was like, all I have to do is stay with these guys and get to main street and I'm going to pass them all. And uh, I was like, I feel great. And uh, made it up the last couple hills, still felt great. And uh, came across the lake. And on the lake, I'm thinking, oh, my, like I was, uh, you know, at that point, it's like, I'm going to, I'm going to win. I'm winning the Berkey, you know, because those two other guys were gone. And, and at that point for a sprinter, as you said, getting on the podium in a 52K race is unheard of. And I'm going to get, I'm going to have the opportunity to out sprint these guys. So it's like, you know, I was like, I'm winning the race. Um, so we pull on to, to Main Street. And I was like, all right, here we go. And, you know, I came over the bridge or across the road there and, and drag race up Main Street. And I was so fired up because um, growing up, going all the way back to the start of our conversation is, is I grew up going to the Berkey, like I uh, wanted to win the Berkey as a kid, you know, because that was the big race. And, and you get to go down Main Street with all the fans and everything like that. And it's a really unique experience. And so, yeah, here I am coming down Main Street, feeling like I won the race. The crowd's going wild because it's a pack sprint to the end. Um, and, uh, yeah, I pulled it out. And it's, it was uh, – that was one of the uh, – it was an epic race. And one of the, one of the experiences of cross-country racer that I will never um, forget either because it was um, my, you know, childhood dream, if you will, 
Um, and I don't count Tad and the Italian that won. Basically, I feel like I won that. <laughs> they were too far ahead. <laughs> I got to say, um, as fit as you were, and you were, I believe, the Super Tour or Continental Cup, not only sprint leader, but I think you won the distance uh, overall yeah. as well. Which you, won the overall. You, get, you get World Cup starts, et cetera, for that, you know, and funding. Yep. But, but uh, the bottom line is I kind of thinking you were licking your chops going down Rosies and Duffies and, and into the lake thinking, okay, traditionally there's a headwind. You're like 5Kers or whatever it is, a flat with a little bit of a headwind. You, as fit as you were, you weren't built like a distance skier. You know, I mean, you know, the guys around you were a lot more svelte and, you know, maybe get blown around a little more than you, you know, you're solid, you're bull, you know, and uh, I can only think you're just looking around going, I got this in the bag, man. You kidding me? These guys should have lost me on all those huge hills we just went up because, I mean, come on, you know. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) You must have been really good. Yeah, that was I, I had a lot of internal conversations on that one going like, why am I still with these guys? And these guys got to be wondering the same thing. And I, I'm like, I wonder if they're, are they trying to get rid of me now or, or maybe not? And so it was, it was, it was wild. So it was, that was a, yeah, clearly it, that was a, a really strong, like I said, bittersweet season for me, but probably one of my, um, my fittest years, you know, is that was, Clearly, the the 2010 games were were the were the goal for that one, and yeah. uh, you know, so but that's racing. Well, let's, let me give you an opportunity to talk about another race from any time in your career that was especially memorable or meaningful to you. You know, story time. Yeah, so um, I mentioned a little bit earlier the the Torino Sprint, great course, felt strong, loved it, loved the venue. Um, uh, that one that one sticks out. Um, not only the qualifier, but my heat, um, my heat was stacked. It ended up, I ended up getting, I think fourth or fifth in my heat, but my heat, my first heat, the first, whatever quarterfinal or whatever it was had Zorro, Torania Hetland, and I think the Swede, but anyway, the, the podium came out of my quarterfinal heat. Um, and I was close to it and it was good. I, I was, I was right there. I think I made one little mistake. I got pinched out on one of the hills, but, but uh, what an experience. I felt so good about that race, and it was so close. Um, and it was a skate sprint, um, which I did have some, some good success in, in skate sprints. Um, and, um, but uh, that, was, that was one, that the event, and, and to do it on a world stage and have that, um, that was huge. Uh, so that one, really, that one really sticks out. To me, obviously, the Berkey and my NC, and then U.S. Nationals um, when I won the the sprint title um, in 2006 of that Olympic year. I was that was probably my other. I think my two in the two Olympic years were probably um, probably my two fittest years as an athlete and as a racer. Which you know, I I think that's really um, fortunate to say. I think you know, you obviously you try and peak for those those major events in those two seasons. When you look back on them, um, I think we did a lot of things right a lot of things right. And that really um, talks to the coaching that I had through that period, but U S nationals winning the sprint there. um, Cause I had the good result previous to that for going into the Olympic year that really put me on the radar for that Olympic team. And then I put the explanation point on it at that U S nationals. And it's like, all right, there's, there's no way I can miss this one. I'm I'm ready to go. So that one was, um, and my parents were, were able to uh, uh, watch me at that race as well. So, um, that one really stands out. Um, I think I had one more. 
Um, oh, and then uh, probably some of the other ones from the World Cup was I always had success at like Otapa uh, as a classic sprint and Lati as a skate sprint, two venues that I felt really at home at. Um, uh, Otapa, really crazy, classic sprint, um, good course there as well, good crowds, uh, good venue. Um, and then Lati, very much, uh, very much the same. Love the, love the course, love the venue, um, and had success there. So those are the two stops, stops on the World Cup that I always had uh, good memories from, for sure. So two things. First, I, I apologize for not mentioning you were national champion. I, I knew that. Um, I guess I was uh, mentioned the 12th place World Cup finish and 21st Olympics, and I just forgot to throw that in there. But you were a national champion, obviously, which is a great deal. The second thing is I have a question for you. When did you feel, was there a breakthrough moment for you mentally where you all of a sudden were like, hey, I can compete in the World Cup with these guys? Yeah, I think in that, I think um, that 06 season, um, when I had this success at Silver Star in that World Cup against some of the best in the world and skied with them in my heat, um, and then going into U.S. Nationals and having the confidence through that and then carrying that right into the Torino Games where I had success, that, that was a turning point in my career um, that said, you know, this, this isn't a fluke. Um, you know, this isn't just feeling, you know, super hot on, on a race day and having a result that you can never replicate. This is like, clearly you have the talent, you have skill to do this and compete with these guys. Um, and uh, that, was, that was the start of my um, kind of World Cup career. So I think that was one where after, from that point on, you know, being on the U.S. ski team and going to those World Cups, um, there was a, a sense of belonging and it was a sense of like, um, you're not here just to participate. You want to be qualifying and having the opportunity to, to fight through the rounds. Yeah, cool. I got a question for you. Um, you and I have something in common, in my opinion, but I, I want to hear your, your thoughts on this. But a great many former world-class ski racers never race again once they mm -hmm. retire. I think it's for fear of ruining their legacy and for perhaps injuring their own pride. Um, for me, and I believe with you, the love of competition and pushing yourself surpasses this insecurity. You know, it's kind of like, I love skiing and I love ski racing. Okay, so I might embarrass myself. Or I might, you know, people might be walking around going, I thought Chris Cook was fast. You know, what, what the hell, you know, kind of a thing. Yeah, you take that risk, of course you do, you know. But it's, um, but the fear of that is less than your love of the skiing and, and competition. Yep. But that's not the case with everybody. So um, that's one reason I love to see you at the Berkey every year with this huge grin on your face, looking forward to enjoying the scene and looking forward to the race and all that. I'd love to hear your thoughts about not letting pride get in your own way of your enjoyment of racing after you've peaked as a, in your career. Yeah, that, that's a, that's a great thing. And I think, uh, you know, I, that parallels a lot of, um, athletes or professional athletes is, is when you retire, it, it is, it is tough. You have that legacy. You've had, you've built up all, all of these things. Um, and then, and then it's like, well, and then you stop training, you're retired. So, I mean, especially those first, you're still fit, but you're, you're not putting in any of the work or the training that you used to, to be at that high level. And it, and, and frankly, it is tough. And, um, the, um, I think a lot of people struggle with it. I think some athletes just never just keep going and going and going until, you know, until they can't anymore. And, um, and, and in my case, I, I stepped away and, 
it was it was tough. It was still one of the the hardest decisions, and it's it creates one of those what now moments. You know, I I ski raced my my entire life, and it defines me as a person. And guess what? I'm not going to be doing that anymore. So it's like, you know, and I can't go out and do it because I don't want to. You know, I didn't do any of the preparation, and I can't go out there because I won't. I'll be half of what I used to be. And you know, how do you how, how do you how do you live with yourself that way? So it was it was it was it was really tough. But and I, and you mentioned one thing. I think, you know, going to the Berkey, the passion for your teammates and the relationships you build and all the people that you see in the industry and in the scene that's what you really miss. And that's what you, that's what got me over kind of over the hump that said, Hey, you know, I'm going to go do the race. You know, it's not about the race. Um, you know, I, I love, I want to go out there and race and, and do the best I can with what I'm working with. But at the same time, I want to see my old teammates. I want to see the racers of the future. I want to see the industry guys that have supported me through the way, because you miss those when you retire from, from racing, the scene moves on and your teammates move on and you see new teammates come up and, and uh, you miss that. I mean, that's, you know, those were your teammates and the people you traveled the world with um, and the people that supported you. Um, and so if that's the trade off to get out there and, and uh, you know, put, put the pride aside and put the legacy aside and say, you know what, you know, the, the sport is bigger than that. The passion, the, the relationship, you know, and your legacy is never going to go away. That's always going to be there. They can't take that away from you. You put in the work, you know, now it's time to enjoy and, and talk and tell your stories and watch the youth coming up and talk to some of those guys. And, and, uh, you know, I had a conversation, uh, with, uh, uh Ian, uh, Torchia from, uh, from Northern at the Berkey. So you get to see those guys that are competing on the podium and, and, and launching their careers on the world cup and questions or talk about some venues or races that they've had. And, and maybe you, maybe you help and in, inspire them or give them a piece of knowledge that they didn't have before. And, and, and they can use that and, and grow on it. Um, so that you really miss that. And that's why the Burke, that's why it's, uh, you know, I, I won't miss it. And I'll go back and see those guys racing. And, uh, Newell was there last year. So I got to catch up with him after not seeing him for a while. And, um, you know, that's, that's what the sport's ultimately all about. That's why you got into it. That's why um, that's one of the, one of the uh, unexpected perks of the, of this sport is the relationships, the scene, the race, the racing, the families, um, that whole, that whole side, the racing is just a, a kind of a byproduct of that. And, and to have success um, at, at the level that I did, and then to continue to have that, you, you, that's something to be really proud of, I think. Absolutely. It is. Yeah. yeah. Cool. I like what you said. Looking back at your ski racing career, is there anything that you would do differently were you to do it again? Is there something you think you did particularly well or, or not so well? Yeah, I, I, you know, hindsight being 2020 and we changed a lot of things and I don't have a lot of regrets with how it went. You know, maybe, you know, sure in an ideal world, maybe you can change the, the, uh, the geography of the World Cup racing circuit or having more races and 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 have small things like that but but in hindsight you know you can't you know I don't have a lot of regrets through my whole ski career and I had I had good success and I'm really happy with that um I think one of the things that I that really helped me in my career and flourished um was able to help me was 
um, I was really able to block out the distractions and the pressure from the, from the large events. I never had a problem at a, um, on say the world stage on an Olympic race, when the pressure's on, you've got to have this result or all eyes are on you. Um, it really didn't impact me. And I think, I think some racers did struggle with that on, on big venues. It was, um, you know, your world championships, your, your U S nationals, your trial races, um, some of those, it didn't matter what venue I was at. I could have been skiing in the woods with not a single fan, um, you know, on the middle of the woods, or it could be on the world stage at the Olympic games with, or packed spectators, a home and Cole or Drummond. It didn't matter. Um, the pressure never really got to me. And I think that was something that really helped me throughout my entire race career was I didn't have that noise um, because our sport is tough enough with all the other things, the training and the physical aspect. Um, not to have the, the, the strain of the mental side of it, I think really allowed me to, to unlock my uh, physical potential. So cool. answer that one. Can you give, when you came through, you know, the U.S. juniors weren't nearly as successful as they are now. And, and of course, the, the senior athletes are doing quite well, too. Can you give your thoughts regarding the current U.S. juniors and seniors who are killing it for the U.S. out there right now? Oh, I think it's awesome. Um, and I thought it was, you know, really cool. Um, we, uh, faster skier. We won the world junior, um, the, the relay, right? Twice in a row. Yeah. Twice, I mean, and that, well, that brings me all the way back to when I was on uh, to my world junior teams is, is we wanted, you know, we had some good skiers, but that relay was something that, you know, it's like, gosh, I mean, that was our goal. And that was, uh, goes probably one of my one other regrets, uh, circling back is that I didn't get to be a chance, uh, a part of more of our, the distance relay of the 10 K relay, because that has always been something that's just such a cool event. And when I was a world juniors, um, uh, we did, we actually got on the podium, uh, for fifth, I think fifth or sixth. Um, but then, uh, to see those guys, uh, you know, being on the top step of the podium, I mean that that just shows you where the, where we come to, where we come from and where we're where we're going. Um, super cool. Um, so that was a real proud moment. You know, you'd like to think that that you were a a part of that um, as a skier, and maybe some of those kids before before you or that you inspired, and maybe they looked up to. But uh, that sense of pride and, and being a part of that, it it seems as a part of the U.S. Uh, US ski community um, to see that come through. Um, really cool. You know, we had some individual success, um, you know, Chris Freeman winning U23s um, and Andy Newell having success on the World Cup. We had some some successes and it's just grown and it's and it's really snowballed. Um, so I hope that continues. Um, and like I said, I hope that expires then inspires the next group of crop of juniors coming up under those guys. Uh, to keep us heading in the right direction because I think we've really over the past 10, 15 years seen U.S. Um, skiing grow in, in, our, in our ability to make noise at the international level, which, is, which has been the goal. Yeah, for sure. Well, tell us what you're doing for work now. So I'm, I'm, I re, when I retired, I came back to Rhinelander. Uh, I love the West absolutely loved it, but I really missed the, um, the lakes of the Midwest. So I came back to Rhinelander, 
um, and fortunate enough to uh, get a career here with uh, a paper company, um, Alstrom Munchko. Uh, so it brings me back to my European travel days, which is cool. And uh, I am uh, sales for our coded division. So we make uh, papers that are silicone coded um, that uh, can hold um, uh, uh, like uh, backing to uh, window flashing or roof flashing or things like that, really kind of specialized um, papers. So uh, that's what I'm doing now for work and uh, fortunate enough to be back home in Rhinelander doing it. So cool. So my daughter, my younger daughter, Pearl, watches The Office constantly. <laughs> and uh, I don't, you're the first person I know who works for a mid sized Midwestern paper company or whatever, you know. Um, it, I got to think that there's a lot of office jokes going around. I mean, do you even, is your boss anything like Michael? Do you have people in the office that you're like, that's Dwight, you know, or something like that? Oh, I wish. No, no, you know, Scranton paper. We, I do, you know, when I, when I need some motivation, I do come home and throw on the office and, and <laughs> try and pick up some tips to, to help me in my job. But uh, no, we do have some of those and, and, you know, being in the paper industry, we've definitely like uh, when we're going through our, our fire drill training or some of our safety training, we'll often use the, uh, the office uh, fire drill training uh, as a good motivation for, for how you want to do that. So we, we learn a lot from the office, pretty much run the same way. But, it, but it's, it's not like a constant uh, office humor going on in your, in your business there? You think it would? No, not, no, not anymore. I wish. <laughs> yeah, me too. That'd be fun. Okay, well, let's, let's change gears again. You've gotten into enduro motocross racing. Yeah. Can you comment on how you got into it? Talk about the scene a little bit. And do you see many crossovers into mountain bike and even ski racing? Yeah, certainly. So that was one of the, when I retired, um, you know, you, you're searching for something to, to, to find, uh, to replace that racing bug. And I was fortunate enough to come home and there was a professional motocross racer that, uh, um, that was kind of getting towards the end of his career, but really had a shot at, at the podium and winning overall championships and things like that. And much like, much like us was looking for every edge he could get. And so when I came back to the area, he's like, you know what, I can excel with strength and conditioning. And so here I am completely green to motor, you know, motocross here. I grew up in silent sports. Uh, mountain biking was, was as close as I got to on two wheels, but um, sat down, talked with him. Um, and the parallels that, that you started to see between periodization of training, um, how you do it, what you need, core strength, balance, coordination, I had all of these parallels. And I was like, are you doing any of this stuff now? And he's like, yeah, a little bit, but I don't really know what the heck I'm doing. And so I was able to step in and really uh, work on core and balance training with them and, and help uh, organize his hard days and recovery days and endurance days that way. Um, and it was, it was, it was a perfect fit. Traveled the, the circuit with him. He ended up, um, I think, uh, I think he ended up his last two years of his career, uh, in the overall championship third in both years before he retired. And so I got to be a part of that, um, which was really cool. Um, so the parallels that were there were, were, were unbelievable and, uh, entered me into a whole new, whole new sport. So, um, so then eventually I was like, man, I'm going to, I'm going to try this. I loved, I've always loved mountain biking throughout my entire career, mountain bike race in the off season. Um, when I, when I could, when I was training to use that. So I love being on two wheels and, you know, so I had some of the skill and then had to learn everything that a motor 
motor our motor brings into it. So it was it was a new challenge for me. It was something I had knew nothing about and really allowed me to um, kind of go back and use um, the tools that I had when get my mind back when I was a ski racer. Okay, I'm going to go out there today. I'm going to work on this. Um, you know, so it, it was able to take your mind and and kind of manipulate it and allowed me to get into a space too where I could, you know, clear my head a little bit as well. Um, so, and the sport is completely grueling. I do two hour racing, so it's, it fits right up the endurance, um, the dur- endurance aspect. And it's like, hey, I call it, hey, you know, mountain biking on crack, essentially. You know, you're, you're screaming through the woods. So it's, it's wild. I really enjoy it. It was um, uh, something that I would have never pictured myself getting into growing up in silent sports. Um, but the parallels and and um, uh, all the all those things that have, have gone along with it were were remarkably similar. So so really cool and really challenging and new. So very exciting. Yeah, super. So you live in Rylander. That's where you grew up. Um, there's a local ski team. You've got knowledge and the skill set that very few people have. Um, that kind of brings the question about kind of giving back to the sport or whatever. I know that um, you've got a lot of family commitments and you've got your job commitment and you've got your hobbies like uh, enduro racing. I know one thing you've been doing to help out is uh, working on that course that you mentioned earlier and, and see if you can get it fist ready. Can, yep. you, can you talk about, uh, you know, kind of what you're doing in the local ski scene? Like yeah, that? certainly. So that having working with that course in the ski club um, was huge to bring recognition to, especially that college races. So these, these kids, um, in our program, the high school program, that was one thing that really motivated me was seeing the college aspiration, what you could do with it. So that was, and that was without even having a collegiate race here. So now we're bringing college racers in for our younger kids to see that and be like, man, there's a future in this. And, you know, it's, it's a full on team and it's, it's, it's similar to all the other major sports and things like that. So that's been huge. Um, and then being a part of that race, um, that race and organizing it and, you know, handing out awards and talking to the juniors and, and doing things like that has really, um, that's really where I've found I've had my biggest impact and way to give back is, is, is helping keep that going and, and keeping that, um, keeping that visibility and growth of the sport, um, especially in our area. I've thought about coaching, but, uh, and I've done a little bit like, but I've, I've always kind of shied away from it because, you know, when you, when you get to that elite level, it's, it's hard to, you gotta, I mean, the good coaches are good at it, but you, it's, it's, it's hard not to push them too hard or, or, or push them away from the sport or, 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 or do things like that. So I, I've, I've stayed away from that. And because of that, I've tried to find other avenues like um, the race organization in, in the program and doing little small things, showing up and skiing with the kids you know, working a little bit with technique and explaining some of those things and sharing stories and really kind of motivating them that way. And if, you know, and I've had people reach out to me and if, if they do reach out to me, I'm more than willing to say, Hey, here's what I did. You can show me what you're doing. I'll try and help you as, you know, however I can. So really kind of helping out the, the ski club that way is really where I've had my biggest impact here. Cool. Thank you. Cool. You know, that's, that's something that I think is an important point not that you're not qualified, but there's more to it than knowing a lot about how to get fast and, and having good results. You know, coaches, mm-hmm. there's, there's, um, 
there's a need to have that kind of steady hand, focus on fun, be yep. really sensitive to each, let's say, child's respective needs in terms of, you know, needing attention or needing um, to be uh, fed, you know, emotionally perhaps and stuff like that. As compared to be like, hey, get your asses up the hill, man, you know, and this is how yep. you do it. You know, it's a whole different, you know, that's yep. not necessarily productive. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, very true that, and they're good and the great coaches, they, they have everything that you just explained. And I, you know, I, I don't know if I have that, you know, but, and, but I don't want to, I don't want to push them away the other way. So, um, you know, and that just goes to, that just goes, it's another piece of, of coaching that I think a lot of people don't realize that, that you've got to be just as good in everything you just said, as well as having the understanding of the sport yeah. to be a successful coach. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, um, as you know, I've, I've been the Toka glove designer for ever since they've been around and earlier. Um, and you've skied with Toka gloves for decades there. I'm curious if you wouldn't mind sharing what your favorite Toka glove is and why. Certainly. So my favorite has always been is the Profi. Uh, the lightweight one, I, my hands um, never really got, weren't, you know, I didn't have really sensitive hands, but I love the feel of the Profi, the, the minimal feel. It was warm enough. Um, it was, it was sleek. It was comfortable. Um, I felt fast when I had them on. So that was my go-to. Um, and the other one that, that I, um, on the really cold days that I loved was the windstopper one, the fleece windstopper, uh, on the days when it was, it was just too cold, but even on, you know, so even on the cold race days though, there was never a time where I don't think I raced, I didn't race in my profies. I'd have warm mittens on before, but on the starting line, I was going for, I was going for speed, sleek, sleek and and looking good in the that toko profi um yeah i i raced that and gosh when all the way back to my college days all the way through so they have, was, a, pretty, they have a pretty unique feel because that there's that elastic mesh between the fingers and the uh, facets between the fingers and mm -hmm. um so they kind of grab your fingers which is which is yep. different you know in cold conditions that's something that you don't want you know mm -hmm. but in in warmer conditions and for lightweight race glove it has a unique feel, which you kind of put it on and you know, you're going to go fast that day, you know? That's right. I, and I was a, I was a, I was a big proponent of that is, is you wanted to, when you, I didn't wear my race suit a lot, right? Uh, you know, for training because I wanted that to be my uniform. Uh, that was my uniform and those Toko Profis, those were my race gloves. That was my race suit. And when that went on, you look good, you feel good, you race fast. Um, so that, that was, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Okay, a couple of um, just kind of general questions that may or may not have to do with skiing. It depends on how you want to answer them. Yeah. What do you know now that you wish that you had known when you were 18? Oh, gosh. Oh, that uh, probably when you look back at it all, um, you really want to relish your teammates and some of those and really remember those memories that you made in some of those hotels and, and with your teammates and the weird places you ended up um uh, that because that's the stuff you know the, you remember the races and you work so hard to get those results um but it's really the journey through all of that is what you really should try and remember as well because that's those are lifetime memories and and uh you know in the, in the moment and especially when you're young you take them for granted um but that would be the one thing i'd say like you remember those those silly stories in the wax room and the you know, some of the crazy spots you end up in these, these little villages in Europe. 
things like yeah. that. Cool. Sure. What is something about you that might surprise people if they were to find out? Uh, probably that I got into motorsports somehow, which is from the silent sport community into that. I mean, that's about a, U, about a big a U-turn as you can get. Um, and so I would say that one, that's probably would be, I wear my, I wear my emotions and, and personality on a sleeve. So I think there's not a lot of things that people don't already know about me. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Okay. And, uh, lastly, do you have a mantra or philosophy that can be summed up in a few words? Yeah. Um, I do. And I wrote that one down. So it, um, it was, it was um, dream big has always been a bit, a big proponent of mine and dream big and don't, don't fear paving your own way uh, or going about it your own way. Um, always keep, you know, keep that dream alive, set your goals, set lofty goals. That's kind of the whole dream big thing. And, and don't feel like you have to follow the cookie cutter ladder way. Um, and throughout, throughout life and throughout my ski career, there were challenges, there were setbacks, there were, you know, I went to college at a time when you weren't supposed to go to college, you were supposed to go and, you know, be a full-time skier. Um, then there were tough decisions along the way and some of them maybe weren't the right ones, um, but some of them were. And uh, ultimately when you look back at it all, um, I kind of went, did my, went my own way, blazed my own path and helped establish a foundation for future and a, a sport, which is awesome. And don't have many regrets um, looking back at it either. And all of those things I think have shaped me and, and to help me in my, my professional career today, my family life um, and things like that. So dream big and, and don't, feel, don't feel like you can't uh, do it your own way. Super. Yep. Hey, um, this has been a lot of fun catching up with you, but I have to say, this has been one of the best interviews I've done. You've been animated and focused and, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. You know, we've been kind of just clicking, clicking them off and exploring all sorts of different things. I'm sure this is going to be a very popular interview. That's got a lot of inspiring and informative uh, content as well as your personalities come through. So I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. I'm not going to see you at the Berkey this year, obviously, because I'm not going out. Um, but I hope to see you there next year. Yeah, for sure. No, I appreciate it. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. And, and I hope, uh, I hope the ski community gets some, some value out of this or some enjoyment too. So appreciate the opportunity for sure. No question.